Welcome to Buffeting, the podcast where my wife Cass Ew. and I share our conversations on investing with you as we try to keep compounding capital so I don't have to go back to being a carpenter. And I don't have to go back working with real estate agents. <laughs> we hope you find it informative and entertaining. But we are not your financial advisors and nothing we say should be taken as investment advice. As always, do your own research, which is more fun. And now without further ado, on to the episode. So I guess this will be our third episode on inflation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you sick of it yet? <laughs> I'm sick? so sick of it. <laughs> but it's so important. I know. I know. That's the thing. It's like you don't get to choose the opportunities that you don't get sick of. Like, you know, obviously looking at some interesting company is always good. Mm. But, yeah. I think with this as well, we feel like it's just as dangerous as the virus was yes you know so we're getting that that same kind of feeling yeah that it's really important people know what's going on yeah. and it's really important that people talk about what's true so yeah inflation is real it's not transitory this was quite obvious quite a while ago did you actually did you see what yellen said about that transitory word she's like many people misunderstood what i meant by transitory oh, that, that's that's what she said <laughs> Let's change the meaning of the word instead of saying we were wrong. I feel like I'm being gaslighted I by know. Janet Yellen. <laughs> uh. Janet, I thought you meant this. You know? Janet, don't play semantics with me. Janet, don't do that to me, please. I trusted you. I trust you, Janet. That's right. We trust Jane now. But yeah, when we started reading about this stuff, me and you, when mm. we were thinking about it, we felt like we were the only ones who were really serious about that this was going to be like a serious problem, basically. And there was going to be a hard problem to solve. And since we first started, there's been a lot of change, isn't there? Which is why we're, we're doing a third episode on inflation, because it is really important. And uh, we got an active hedge on, which mm-hmm. we think is a, a really good um, opportunity for people still. I mean... It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the hedge has moved like a fair bit in our direction, but the pricing is still very cheap yeah. for someone if they're interested. Like you're looking at somewhere between a 10... 15, 20x return if, you know, rates move 1% to 1.5% at the long bond market. Mm. So that's pretty that's pretty crazy opportunity, especially if you've got a fully invested portfolio of like highly valued stocks, mm-hmm. you know. But the good thing is about the hedge and what we kind of said at the start was that um, it's a monitoring process. So every month, every week, every day, mm. we, I mean, we do have some things that we're tracking, like in terms of CPI and what's changing. But we've gotten, just by reading and just by looking in the frequency of articles and the intensity of those articles and, you know, what kind of future those articles are talking about, you know, and how negative or positive, you know, inflation is projected to be. You know, there's articles in all the major papers every day now talking about quantitative tightening, talking about, is inflation transitory? Is it going to be solved? Like it's it's pretty pretty intense how discussed it is now as a topic, and that's that's what we we're looking for, wasn't it? Like we were looking for that to happen that's over time. Right. And those same people saying only two three months ago, inflation's transitory and it's going to go away. The yeah. Fed shouldn't touch rates because they're going to hurt the market. Exactly. So the same people have changed the narrative. The Fed themselves has changed their narrative. Yeah. Um, but the bond market has not changed much. Exactly. And there's a lot of focus on like what effect will 
quantitative tightening have, which is basically just the the mechanism of the Fed unwinding buying bonds. It's just they used to be buying a lot of bonds and they plan to not buy a lot of bonds in the future. But ultimately, the goal of everything and the only way they're going to have an effect on inflation is if it becomes more expensive to borrow. Like it's very, it's not actually very complicated. Like there's a lot of discussion around like, what effect will this have? And what if they stop buying in this date? And what if they roll off on this date? And like, it's really confusing. And it's the, I think people are just missing the wood for the trees. Like it's just, what is the problem? The problem is that inflation is out of control, like seven and a half percent, very broad based across all factors. I think I read like 87% of small businesses have rose prices of their products in the past few months. Mm. Like people are raising prices across the economy, across all services, you know. So to stop that, you need to tighten across all services. Mm. And that's where the only thing, well, the the whole bond market is still at pretty low interest rates and they keep the, um, the bond rates keep adjusting every time the Fed says something. But it's not taking into account... If you look forward a few months and said like, okay, well, taking into account that they don't really tell you what they're going to do in six months time, they kind of adjust things slightly, then you would pretty much see that just because they've said one thing doesn't mean that's what they're going to do. And that, you know, over time, they're going to keep breaking this bad news to you slowly that rates are going to have to go up and go up quite substantially. And the biggest thing that we think is going to happen next is that the long-term bond rates are going to rise. Um, Long-term bond rates are like always what gets hurt the most by inflation. But ultimately, not only is that a consequence of inflation, but also raising the rates of those long-term bond rates is going to actually create a tightening effect. And they actually have to do that. They have to tighten um, those long-term bond rates because that's what affects mortgages. And mortgages is what affects CPI, (laughs) you know, over time. So it's all basically connected, but... Focusing on this factor or that factor is not so important. It's more focusing on what is their, what do they have to do to solve this problem, which is now being accepted as a real problem. The good thing is, is that what we thought was going to happen six weeks ago or what we thought was likely to start to change um, in the sense that it was kind of similar to the virus in that this is a big, scary, terrible problem for investors that people are probably going to be slow to recognize People are probably going to be slow to accept that you've got to put your required returns on your valuations up mm. like 2%, 2, mm-hmm. 2 or 3%. Um, not a very nice thing to have to do. You know, Not a very nice thing to have to tell your investors. If you're a professional investor, that's for sure. Um, if you're a bond investor, that's like what you're, you're specifically doing. What do bond it? Yeah. yeah, I mean... <laughs> They've just been going to work and just sitting there. And- it's like... They could buy tips. Like, can you put your whole portfolio in, like, you know, inflation protected? What they should you know, be doing is updating their resumes. They should be making them seem like they're like mining focused. It's like, yeah, I was a I was a bond investor, but you know, I'm actually going to be doing mining from now on. You know, but yeah, we we kind of thought that it was underappreciated, basically, how big of a risk it was, and um, it seems like a lot of people are starting to appreciate it. I think. And considering how much the Federal Reserve has changed over the last six weeks from saying two or three rate hikes, now it's more like four or five, feels like consensus. And you've got one guy coming out today, um, Bullard, who said, I want to be at 1% by the middle of the year, which is a a big change, Mm -hmm. you know, 
So that's kind of where we're at. And that's a massive change in narrative just Huge. in a short amount of time. Huge, yeah. Because like on our whiteboard, we've got listed all the Fed narrative over the months and like only back in, I think, October, mm. they were saying, well, tapering was finishing in June and there wasn't even a mention of rate rises. No. So yeah. now we're at the start of February. Tapering is ending in March. Ending in March, yeah. And people are throwing around a 50 basis point possible rise in march exactly definitely the world's changed a lot mm. and um like yes our hedge is in profit and that's good it's moving in that direction which is which is cool um we just think there's still a long way to go a long way to go in terms of the market accepting what's likely mm. to happen so yeah i guess let's have a bit of a recap of what inflation is doing now when you look at the the cpi 60 percent of it is shelter and food the rest of it's kind of energy, education, healthcare. So anything where there's like a service attached to it. So it's like, you know, healthcare, education, like you need a person for that. And wage inflation is gathering steam, gathering pace. And that is the fundamental driver behind those numbers and what's going to happen in the future. So if you think that those things are going to be like negative impacts on inflation or whatever, then you need to, you need to be thinking, you need to believe that wages are going to start going down, um, which is not likely. Not likely. Not likely. And um, once you account for the fact that the whole housing boom over the past 18 months is only starting to get reflected in the shelter CPI yes. now, yeah. and shelter is 42% of CPI, um, it's going to be a pretty bad year ahead for inflation. So Definitely. that's what we're basing our understanding on, mm-hmm. that inflation is bad and it's something that is going to require higher interest rates to tackle to deal with exactly right and it's true that a lot of the things that are causing the high prices are not in the government's control like commodity prices for example like fertilizer prices oil prices prices of metals like all of that is contributing to higher goods prices and higher car prices and higher washing machine prices and all that kind of stuff and yes there are fundamental factors as to why the housing market is experiencing rent inflation. It makes a lot of sense that there was there hasn't been enough building over time and there's been a massive amount of people who are now working from home. They want a better house. They want to move somewhere else. Um, interest rates have been very low. So it's quite cheap. How has been quite cheap over the last year to get a big loan, move to a different area. Mm-hmm. That creates friction. That in- initiates you know furniture buying, goods buying, Peloton buying, you know, screen buying, computer buying, all, the, all those things are you know, part of it. But the, the fundamental drivers behind it all, they just don't seem to be abating. They don't seem to be stopping. No, which yeah. is purely demand, consumer yeah. demand, yeah. people's appetite for spending, for wanting things. Yeah. If and- people couldn't afford to do any of these things, then it, the prices wouldn't be going up. Yeah. And that's where we run into the big issue of of the money supply argument because the increase in money supply is not an immediate problem until that money is being used in the economy. Yes. And so if half of that money printing is just sitting in bank reserves, so it's basically the, the banks have massive capacity to still lend to people yes. whenever people want to yeah. at low rates. That's the money supply danger. Yeah. I think we, we, we think about it like... 
you've got people's you know cash balances and their assets and stuff and the money and their income and that kind of thing and people's incomes are going up which is going to allow them to spend more anyway um but there's also these two huge reservoirs of inflation and it's capacity to borrow which is bank reserves have created a huge amount of capacity to borrow um, also to lend out sorry you know from the banks but also the markets you know the markets have been in a huge bubble any measure you want to pick big bubble mm-hmm. <laughs> okay so um, that whole thing is just one transaction away from spending power in the real economy exactly they're all just dams of money <laughs> yep exactly so the, the the lower income from what we can tell hasn't accumulated a huge amount of savings they've you know paid down debt um, mostly it seems like but the top 60 percent of Americans have got huge excess savings and one thing we know about Americans and I would say Australians too we have a very consumer kind of culture mm. it's like if you have the capacity to spend then you will spend um, the problem is at the moment you can't get anything to spend on so mm-hmm. there's like there's still this like built up desire to spend we think is there um, which, which is, is where of- one of the arguments against inflation um, becoming worse is that people look to that credit impulse score and because that it's not appearing like people are taking on more credit mm-hmm. or, or they weren't in the period that would forecast the coming period mm-hmm. it didn't look like there was a lot of people taking out credit and credit has predicted inflation mm-hmm. you know which makes sense which makes sense if yeah. if there's things that you can buy with credit <laughs> yeah is there a car available for to you buy you can't buy a car well you can buy a car but you have to wait a year houses like the housing supply is limited which is why the prices are going up we i, I read somewhere that there's apparently more real estate agents in america than listings Probably. so how how are you gonna you real know real estate agents you know, work on your resume as well, I would say. Bond <laughs> managers and real estate agents. <laughs> and possibly the Fed. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah. So that's that's why we're so concerned, I guess. Too. We've got a million more points. I guess this is the problem that it's taken us so long to feel comfortable doing another update on inflation because every day we listen to Joseph Wang, Larry right. Summers. Yep. Grant Williams, Jim Bianco, all these amazing people yeah. who um, really have good technical knowledge. Yeah. And every day we're learning more and more and more. And so it's like, at what point do we? It's like, do we know enough today? <laughs> We've got to unload some of that. Yeah. That brain knowledge, and I guess yeah, put put it out there to be criticised, to be like actually have people hear it and say like, I disagree with you, I, I agree with you, you know, whatever. But the the question that's going to be really relevant to everyone's investment portfolios in the coming few months is what is the Fed going to do exactly? Mm. You know, like we know what the problem is. The problem is, is we now have broad-based inflation across every item pretty much. And how's the Fed going to solve that? Well, higher interest rates. But there seems to be this gap in everyone's knowledge where they think that they're going to, you know, jack up short-term rates, you know, so like two-year, one-year rates, those things kind of relate to like car loans and personal loans. You know, that those rates kind of correlate with that, but they're just not going to bother to touch 10-year, 20-year, 30-year rates um, because for some reason they just won't worry about it. Like, no, those rates correlate to the cost of buying a house. Those rates correlate to rent 
18 months later. So it's actually, from what I can tell, it's vitally important that they do everything they can to make it more expensive to buy a house, to, to, to discourage people from continuing to bid up the restricted supply. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that I guess that takes us to our hedge. Our hedge, basically, the underlying thesis is that long-term bond yields have to go higher in line with short-term interest rate increases. Yes. And we think it's also in the Fed's incentive for long-term yields to go higher as well. Yes. But the market, well, the market in in rabbit ears, what do we call those things? In air quotes. Air quotes. Um, the market is not pricing in no. future yield increases but stanley Druckenmiller himself has said the bond the bond market the bond market is not giving you any signals right now because the fed is the buyer in the market like they're distorting all the signals you can't even read from it at the moment until march until the fed pulls out exactly and with our kind of three points of evidence on why we think that the long-term rates are going to go higher i feel are pretty solid you've got Druckenmiller. One of the greatest investors of all time, you know, understands the bond market. He's made a lot of money off the bond market. He actually understands that. He said that, you know, a lot of money he's made these big turning points of, you know, the economy, basically. Um, He's made money in every market, let's just say. (laughs) The guy's a genius. If it was just him saying it, I'd probably believe it. But... You know, we don't really think that way. We, we, we try and be critical of everyone's yeah. opinion. Try but he and has been it. accurate on his views on inflation for a long time as well. Definitely he has. Um, you know, Bridgewater CIO, Greg Jensen, came out and said that he feels that the, the market pricing of the 10-year bond rate is somewhere between 1.5% and 2% higher than where it is now. So that, that would be a bond rate of not 2%, but 35 to 4%, you know, which would increase house... Um, Interest rates. Interest rates for housing, you know, by about 1.5%. You know, that would be a lot. That's what the Fed really wants to happen. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got, of course, one of the Fed um, voting members of the FOMC. I can't remember what her name was, but she came out and she said that um, it's bad that they're holding down long-term rates because it's encouraging risk-taking, which is not what they want to do, and that she feels that once they stop, um, you know, being a buyer in the market, they get out of the market, rates will also go one to one and a half percent higher so you keep getting this like echo from all these people who understand the markets a lot better than i do and mm-hmm. you do mm-hmm. saying that this is what we want it's going to happen you know it's what needs to happen and instead you've got people who keep focusing on the fact that yield curve inversion which <laughs> yeah. is the let's see if i can get this right okay because okay. it's it's hard to explain it in words Good but I'm, I'm gonna give it a Go. shot okay <laughs> yield curve inversion is when the 10-year rate is the same rate as the two-year rate, okay? So what does that mean? When you looked into it, you're like, well, it's really important to know, is it the short-term going up or is it the long-term going down exactly. in an inversion? Exactly. What has actually happened in history? Is it people piling in to like lock their money away for 30 years that's caused long-term rates to go down and that's caused the yield to invert? Or has it been people pulling their money out of short-term rates, which which has allowed short-term rates to go up to meet the long-term rates. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, so, so 
If you go back on, you've looked at every single time a yield curve inversion has since, taken place. Since 78. So since the end of the inflationary period, mm-hmm. you know, in the 70s, I looked at every point where the yield inversions actually happened. The first time it happened was in 78. Okay. Happened at 8.46%. Two years prior to that, the 10-year rate was 7.6% and the two-year rate was 6.5%. So basically, interest rates went up but short-term rates went up more, okay? Mm-hmm. And they met at 8.46%. Mm-hmm. Now, there was no QE that I'm aware of in 1978, okay? There was no Fed market participation in that market, okay? So that was pure market signals. That was the, the market saying, okay, I can buy bonds, I can buy stocks, I can buy commodities. I'm moving my money in such a way, the pools of money, that you know those two interest rates become the same. But um, yeah, so in the, the next time it happened was in December 88. Again, the point or the interest rate where the 10-year and the two-year were the same, 9.14%. You know, it doesn't really feel very similar to our period history, you know, that we're in now. Um, the next time it happened was in January 2000. The two interest rates were the same. They met at 6.61%. Mm-hmm. So again, it's the same kind of thing where... Interest rates are high at these points where the yield curve inverts. You know, that's what made it kind of feel a little bit unusual to me. And then the next time it happened was in January in 06. So the most recent times, 2000 and January 06, um, massive bubbles. And that was at 4.54, the inversion occurred. Yeah. So all really high interest rate periods, yep. generally during asset bubbles. Yep. And also you found that it was actually people pulling out of the short term, yep. one and two year, yep. and putting their money into the bubbles exactly right. or, or elsewhere. Exactly. So it's very different from today where people are saying people are going to pile into third or long term yes, um, and those yields are going to be pushed to negatives. Yeah, it's very, it's very confusing. It's very confusing to me why people would think that this idea that the 10-year rate is going to be like 2% or 2.2% and the you know the two-year rate is going to go up to that point and that's just going to be how the market's going to see it. It doesn't make sense to me. And the biggest thing that makes all of that completely irrelevant to now is what Drucker Miller said to make it full circle mm. and what the other, everyone else in the market is saying. Everyone who understands the bond market really well, much better than I do, says that when the Fed is out of the market, the rates are going to be going much higher, which makes yield curve inversion not likely at all. You know, if the long-term rate goes higher and the short-term rate kind of stays where it is or goes a little bit higher, then that's a pretty normal-looking yield curve. Mm. You know, like 1% for two years and 3% for 10 years mm. and, you know, maybe 4% or 4.5% for... 30 years, that, that's kind of a normal duration term premium kind of yeah. situation. So basically, yeah. The own, yeah. So the argument um, that there's going to be buyers for long-term bonds yeah. in the future is because there's this threat of recession and people are mm-hmm. going to be forced to... Well, people just want safe, secure returns yep. of like... Um, what what is the return at the moment? The two it's two percent or something for a thirty year. Yeah, it's two point two point three percent. So people are going to run to lock in two percent for thirty years yep. when inflation is at seven point eight, seven point five. Yeah, 
and probably going to be worse over the year. It doesn't make sense to me. No. It's kind of like you must think the threat of recession is more likely than the threat of inflation. Exactly right. Exactly right. And yeah. do we think that? Does anybody think that really? Well, if you think that, you probably used to be in the transitory camp and you kind of adjust, <laughs> yeah, probably. You probably just adjusted your argument so you don't feel too bad about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I, um, not to say we don't think recession is a future likelihood. Yeah, no, we yeah, I mean, we definitely think that it's to solve this whole problem. Historically, it's been a recession that yeah. has, has been the result because and, you know, and because yeah. the Fed has let inflation get so far away from them, yeah. and then it will continue to. Yeah, we think interest rates will have to kind of be pushed well above or where they're saying at the moment yeah, yeah. to combat inflation. Exactly. And, and when you have to move so drastically like that, that yeah. brings on recessions. So you know, yeah, exactly. sure, in the future. Yeah. Absolutely. That's in my mind. How the bond market is going to be impacted from yeah. March <laughs> when you've got the Fed pulling out. And there's still going to be a purchaser in the market because the bonds that they currently own that roll off, so they finish being, they finish um, their duration basically and they get their capital back, they, they still are saying they plan to reinvest that back into the market. So they're still going to be a part of the market, mm-hmm. but they're not going to be a net acquirer. No. That's that's the difference, is they're not going to be an active buyer of huge amounts in the market. Sure. The MBS roll-off, whatever amount that is, yep. or whatever bonds expiring, yep. put that back into long-term if you want. Sure. In the same breath, though, the Fed still has a lot of, uh, a lot of, long-term bonds on their balance sheet which they can sell back into the market to affect the yield in whatever way they want exactly and so that's when you've got to think well how are they going to want to affect the long end of the yield curve do they want people paying more interest for their home loan or less interest exactly exactly imagine imagine right now if they raise interest rates like you know two and a half percent three percent and but you could and you could still borrow at like three and a half percent for for a home or for something like and everything's going up like crazy. It doesn't. It's it's not fighting the battle on the two fronts. It's only fighting the battle on one front. It's you're you're allowing people to consume still by borrowing at long rates, mm-hmm. and you're allowing it. Just it doesn't make sense. And there's absolutely no chance, from what I can tell, and from what I, everything I understand, and from listening to Joseph Wang and all these people who are insiders, there's absolutely no chance that they will just allow long-term rates to stay low while they're trying to fight inflation. So. Pretty confident, I think. You know, it's gone in a direction already, which is which is good because the long term. I think when we put a hedge on the thirty year rate was like one point eight percent, and now it's two point three percent. So the, it's actually you know gone fifty basis points already, um, but we think it's only the start, and we think probably there's another hundred basis points at least to go. Um, the time period we don't know, mm. um, but you know the the resounding, overwhelming calls to fix inflation. You know, it's like 70% of people say it's the number one thing they're worried about. They're kind of damn they do, like damn they don't. Mm. Um, before Volcker came in in the 70s and started to fight inflation, like they were hating on the government for creating the inflation. And then when Volcker had to try and, you know, solve Hating it, inflation. You know, people were throwing bricks through his windows and you know, they said there was like, I heard some of those farmers who were like, blockading the federal reserve and they couldn't get to work like it's not popular either way it gets pretty pretty messy pretty quickly and that's why in the 70s you had all these periods from our research like you had all these periods where they would raise interest rates inflation would kind of subside um and then people would get upset about that so they would get upset about the downturn which kind of cools the inflation 
and they would say, okay, fine, we're just going to stimulate again and off the bubble goes again. And then people are annoyed about inflation and people kind of get, they build a resolve to try and do something about it, but they don't do it, they don't do it properly. And that's what Volcker did. He raised interest rates when inflation was 15%. He raised interest rates to 20% and he kept them there mm. until you know it was coming down and he kept them higher than inflation. So if you can imagine what that would do if inflation stays high, if you can imagine what that would do to all the companies that have debt right now, if they, instead of paying 3%, had to be paying 7 or 8%. You know, it seems far-fetched. It seems insane to think that. Like, you know, it seems crazy, but inflation is the problem and you just can't let it continue. Yeah. You have to do something about it. So. And a lot of people say the Fed's restricted really by how much they can raise rates. Mm-hmm because of their own balance sheet. Right, yeah, yeah. But I think we're looking at it from the point of view of they need to look after their citizens Yeah. more. Like, wh- where is their priority? Is their priority in, like, maintaining the value of their bond portfolio? No, it's not. That is a tool. Like, that's what people say. Like, they say that, oh, they're going to lose a whole bunch of money if they raise interest rates. Like, they don't care. That's just digital money. It's just a, you know, it's just a... A little number on a spreadsheet of you know create digital money it's not important what's important is the real economy and like their job is well yeah but you, you're talking about 300 million people mm-hmm. in a country mm. where a hundred million people who are the worst off yeah. are going to be screaming because they can't afford fuel and food anymore like yeah. what is more important to tackle exactly and that's where inflation is so bad because there's a massive inequality to like people who own assets are watching those assets appreciate and that's makes them feel good makes them feel wealthy they're happy oh this is going great you know people who don't have assets are watching their food bills their fuel bills housing costs rent costs it's terrible it's not fair you know it's all it's all ultimately from the amount of money that's been created and it's sitting in the top and it needs to funnel down to the bottom exactly but their wages aren't being increased to the rate to cover their increased costs and the wage increases are making the problem worse i know i know i know it's definitely a feedback loop that someone needs to do something about and hopefully the fed does their job and they you know yeah fed do job fed do job (laughs) um cool so discuss the hedge um oh yeah the hedge so you know it's appreciated great whatever it's still a long way to go Mm. um you know there's a couple of different ETFs. There's one called Govs, which you could buy puts on. There's one called TLT, which we own puts on. They're all long data bond ETFs that would all, when you run the numbers, they all should fall 30 to 40% in that range somewhere. We think so. If rates go up, you know, anything can happen. Do your own research. Do your own you research. Know, if you don't understand what puts are, watch some YouTube videos about puts. You know, like get into it. Get into it, you know, understand it, and then just, just size it so that. You know, again, not investment advice, but if you're interested in it and if you want to, just size it as small or as large as you want. Like our position is now 11% of our portfolio um, because we feel like it's very, 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 very likely mm. that they will have to push those long rates higher to, um, you know, to make buying a house more expensive, and in turn, 18 months later, reduce the amount of inflation that gets shot into the CPI from the housing number. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously we're always totally open to losing that entire 11%. That is the risk you take yep. 
with situations like this when things can change you know you've got potential war on the horizon in with russia and ukraine so how that affects the bond market well historically the bond market is a flight to safety so when there's when a bad thing happens people go oh quick money into bonds so that's that's where you could have bond rates fall so you know money flowing into the bond market long-term bond market to, you know under a perception of safety or if there's you know a world war situation but i don't put that at a high probability you know putin, p- p- putin's not stupid like i don't think that it's a huge thing to worry about from what i can tell no i i can't see many buyers around really for these bonds at these rates and why not and why not go into gold as a flight safety if you're talking about you know flight safety why not go into something that's been historically a great store of value over inflationary periods and mm. periods of turmoil like there's better options that people could go into but yeah that's that's the risk that you know you could have yes inflation's really bad but then war breaks out and there's a huge flight to safety and that could push the rates down so it's not it's not a position without risk by no. any means no position is no position is at the moment um, and i think that if you think that because you've got a large large position in a company that you understand trading at 15 times earnings 10 times earnings twice book value like it doesn't matter like if if rates go up three percent four percent all that stuff's gonna get a haircut yeah just make sure whatever you're holding can take a haircut <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> add right, a little yeah. bit of a margin too <laughs> add a bit of a margin exactly right um so there's still opportunities out there um but yeah it's continued to sort of progress along as we thought that it it would yeah. um i think we've been right about everything but it's we were right in the sense that it's gonna get worse it has been getting worse mm. and then the fed is you know facing reality at this point or starting to really face reality yeah yeah um yeah i guess it's just like when we see things like this happen like when we before the the covid hedge we just kind of wished we'd been louder because we yeah. heard all this rubbish being spoken people who are meant to be experts but they were being they're obviously incentivized to say something in yeah for their own benefit and that's happening again yeah and so luckily we have a podcast now <laughs> so luckily we can we can say With dozens of listeners <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we can say you know we can talk about this stuff and help other people benefit from it because that's what changes lives and like yeah. all of the people that we talk with through our twitter feeds you yep. know they're all like good people who are trying to grow their capital yeah. and make a good impact on the world. And those people should have more of the money. Yeah. And who do you think the person the money's coming from is? You know, if you if you short a bond ETF, that's a you know, a massive hedge fund that's probably writing those contracts. That's probably, you know, that's where the money's coming from. Like the money's not coming from you know, you're not fleecing someone on the street who needs the money. Like, no, it's no. it's the money's coming from so if you you talk about, you know, anti-Wall Street, anti-establishment <laughs> yeah. stuff, then this is actually probably the way to do it. Again, we won't benefit from anybody because there's so many different options and so many different like durations and so many different ETFs you could do. Like, as absolutely zero chance that anyone would have any impact on the pricing of our specific option. Like, that's all tied to the underlying ETF. The mm. underlying ETF is what sets the price of that option. So, unless someone's listening who's got like four or five billion dollars and they push all that money, you know, into TLT. Um, you know, this is not, we wouldn't benefit at all from any of that. It's just all about, you know, understanding the problem and working out if you want to try and 
you know, benefit off it, basically. Yeah. And you don't have to take out a hedge. You don't have to take out options. Even if this just makes you think, you know, if inflation wasn't on your radar and now it is and you yep. hold like a lot of US equities, yep. if that forces you to think, well, maybe I'll pull out of the US and try yep. a few different emerging markets or like I'll try commodities or something yep. a little bit more defensive. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, raise your cash balance from, you know, 5% to 15%. Like and any of those things, you know, will give you buying power if there is a decline. And, and that may be buying a bond ETF at a high yield. I don't know. Like it might be, it might be a whole different option, you know, that you we might can, be doing that in a year. <laughs> might be a buyer. Who, who knows? Um, so, yeah, I guess um, cannabis is going well. Yeah. Imagine the synergy of that if that plays out this year. That would be good be good it looks like um the safe banking um so the banking part of that legislation looks it looks like it has a good chance of getting passed with a lot of politicians talking about larger legislation mm-hmm. you know on the cannabis front but that could be good or bad for the companies that um, we've looked at and the company that we own depending on what legislation is so there's still heaps of risk there but again they'd be crazy not to try and get something done on that it's bipartisan um you know, before the midterms, it's a very popular policy. Mm. So fingers crossed, you know, logic prevails there and they try and distract the people from, um, you know, how bad inflation is by making weed more available. Yeah, <laughs> but then- basically like the only exposure we have to the US now is our cannabis investment and our, our land bank, Howard Hughes investment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we see that as both very inflationary, defensive. Yes, definitely. I mean... Air's going to be up against it probably with increased fertilizer costs. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's but, true. you know, you're talking about these businesses with pricing power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, depending they, on yeah. who they are. Depending on who they are. And the good thing about air is they do, they are focusing more on branded products as opposed to just selling the flower itself. Like by focusing on, you know, drinks and edibles and things like that that can be branded and packaged well. History would tell you that those things generally will have a higher margin than a raw product. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they're going towards. Like, for example, I noticed that in, in Florida. So Liberty Health, which is owned by Air Wellness, um, second highest seller of THC, but sixth highest seller of flour. So I saw that. I was like, oh, well, they're obviously just selling loads of products that aren't flour, you know, aren't cannabis flour, which is which I think is a smart you know, business direction to go in. Um, but yeah, still trading crazy low multiples and still... Who knows? Who knows? They're, you know, they're already paying above 10% interest rate, so <laughs> that's not going to... They might actually have a lower interest rate exactly. this year than other companies. Exactly. Everyone might be like, you know, interest rates for your average company might go from three to six and airs might go from 10 to eight. And everyone's like, oh, this is fantastic. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So that's looking positive. That's looking positive. A little too. bit of shining light in our day. A little bit. Amidst all the, the stomach turning... Volatility. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But um, yeah, as always, thanks for listening and uh, any questions, send them through. And uh, yeah, good luck. Good luck. If we've got a note for the Fed, it's like, if you want to amputate a leg, don't start with a toe. Exactly. That's all we'd say. <laughs> it's like, cut out the problem. Just cut the leg off and get just, to it. Just do it. <laughs>